Good morning. Uh, Go ahead, take out your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus and the the joy uh, that comes into uh, creation, into the world, into our lives uh, through who Jesus is. Uh, Not only that he was born, uh, but that he also lived on our behalf perfectly as we could not, that he died to pay the penalty of our sin and rose so that by his grace we can be made new, that we can be brought back into community with him. That in and of itself is the joy that we long for. We cannot have any kind of joy outside of him and salvation in him and community with him. We don't know how to relate to one another uh, without him. The joy that every single one of us is looking for is found in him alone. And I don't want us to miss it this year. Um, and I certainly don't want to miss it this Christmas season. Um, and there's one thing that, that is very sure that I'm sure of is true for you that is also true for me. Joy is pretty hard to come by. Is it not? Um, we, we struggle to really live in joy in our lives. And, and a big part of that is that we are by nature negative people. Now, some of us, like everybody knows somebody that's just like super positive. Um, and there's a, a lot of studies that have been done on just happy people and, and the genetics of it. And so if you're just a really happy person, it's probably your genetics. So, you know, you were blessed. Um, but, but most of us, we're just pretty negative people just by our natures. Research actually shows that we pay more attention to negative events than positive ones. We're, we're a people who just kind of thrive on the negative. And so, uh, you know, all of us kind of have this idea that we hate the news because all it is is negative, And we just wish that something good would come out of it. Uh, but it's an absolute, actually not true. Uh, we like the negative news. We, we kind of thrive on the negative news. We want to hear about the negative news. It, we pay more attention to it. News stations know that. That's why they give us the news the way that they give it to us. Uh, and, and, and we know that we actually make decisions based on the negative things that we hear more so than we do on the positive things that we hear. Now, that's not because the positive things are not just as powerful as the negative things, But it's because just by our natures, we kind of see the negative things and put more weight on the negative than we do on the positive. We make those decisions based on negative information. And these are just things that we have found throughout, uh, that have scientific evidence of just how we naturally kind of function. Uh, Now, neuroscientists would say um, that all of us are kind of born with, and what they call this is a negative bias. And so we just have this negative bias in life towards kind of putting more weight on negative things than positive things. Now, science would tell us that's because our ancestors were constantly having to be on the lookout for, uh, you know, what might take their life or how they might not continue in life. And they wanted to continue uh, to thrive. And so they're constantly on the lookout for something that might get in the way of that. Now, we know by reading scripture and being created to have community with God, That as soon as we rebel against God, as soon as we began to seek our own way and not worship him and find life in him, then suddenly we begin to hide. We begin to feel shame. Uh, We begin to realize a brokenness that we were not created to realize or to live in, but we were created to have that community perfectly with God, to, to do all that we did for his glory, to reveal that in all that we are, which gives us right relationship with one another and the world around us. But as soon as brokenness, sin enters into the world, the lens in which we begin to see everything that colors our lives is the brokenness that we find ourselves in. See, everything has a theological implication, and and, and whether we know it or not, all of the good that we see is pointing us towards our good creator that we're created to have community with, and all of the negative is pointing us towards our, our need for a savior, but yet the brokenness that we experience in our lives without him. And we can't get out of that brokenness outside of being saved by him and his work through his grace. There was an article uh, that I read a couple years back uh, by a neuroscientist who, who's written several books on this, this topic of negative bias since then. Uh, but he says that our minds are like Velcro for the negative, but they're like Teflon for the positive. Like we just reject the positive things, but the negative things just stick to us like like Velcro. And then he goes on to say that it takes just three seconds, catch this, three seconds for your brain to imprint a negative memory. 
So if something negative happens in your life and you just focus on it just for a few moments, then it will imprint your mind and it'll be something that you're able to recall almost for the rest of your life. Years down the road, you'll be able to think about that negative experience and all of the emotions you felt, all the memories you had will be so vivid. Like that's why you can think of a negative thing and if it, if it caused you to cry before, it can almost cause you to cry again because it imprinted something on our mind that, that we filter everything else that we go through and life through. So three seconds for a negative experience to imprint your mind and your memories. But it takes 14 seconds, almost five times longer for a positive situation to imprint into your mind to affect the way that you think and you move forward. And so as we experience positive things in our lives, uh, if, we're not, if we're not meditating on those things, if we're not thinking of those things, if we're not processing them, then they will not imprint on our minds and hearts the same way that a negative experience will. And that's why when something really good has happened in your life and then you're trying to think about it years down the road, like you almost always kind of forget most of the details. You're like, I remember it was a good thing. Like I remember going on that vacation or doing that thing with family or experiencing that. But you almost always have to go back and look at pictures and you're trying to like talk with family on like what really happened and why was it so good. But as soon as you think of a negative thing, you immediately remember everything about it. See, we're geared towards the brokenness. Brokenness really has infiltrated our lives outside of community with God, and it begins to color and, and be the filter and the lens in which we see all other things. And, and scientists, oddly enough, have actually come up with ways and methods of kind of overcoming this negative bias, which are absolutely, we'll see in just a few moments, biblical. Now, they leave God completely out of it, but scripture actually tells us to do the exact same thing that scientists are telling us to do today. Now, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, I know joy is really hard to come by. There's reasons for it. We live in a broken and sinful world, and brokenness becomes the lens in which we see everything else. And we need to understand who we are in Christ so that the joy that we have in him becomes the lens in which we see everything. We also need to understand that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that we have been saved in by uh, God's work for us, we need to meditate on the gospel truth. We need to tell ourselves the truth. We need to repeat the truth. We need to be thankful for the truth so that we are able to think of it, meditate on it, and it imprint who we are, that it affects everything that we do. That's what we want to focus on this Christmas season. And Advent is designed to really disrupt the cycle of brokenness and life and, and seeing everything through a negative lens. It's a time where we just take out of the year to reflect on Jesus' coming and his coming again and, and his salvation and him making all things new. Where we can focus on what's best and what's true we can meditate on our salvation, understand our true value and meaning and purpose in a way that implants on our minds, that imprints on all that we are, that we might be able to be transformed into the lives that we're created to live. That joy might be a defining characteristic that nothing can touch, that nothing can add to that has been created and nothing can be taken away that is created that would affect the joy that we ultimately find in Christ. And so I want us to look at the wonder of Jesus intently this holiday season, that it would make a lifelong impression. I want us to meditate on what is good and what is true and what is right. I want it to imprint on our minds. I want it to transform us into an unshakable joy. So when I say I don't want to miss the joy, listen, I'm not talking about all the, the lights and the trees and the presents and the gifts and the, the good times and the family that we have at Christmas. All of those are wonderful and can point us towards Jesus. But what I'm talking about is an unshakable joy. That's what I don't want us to miss. That's what I want us to wrap our, our minds around and our lives around. And so I want us to see that in Luke chapter 2. We started talking about just the, the purpose of Christmas last week and, and really what we're doing over uh, this, this three-week period that we have starting last week and ending next week is, is taking the song, O Holy Night, which we explained the story of last week, kind of the backstory. 
We're taking each verse of, of that hymn, and then we're dissecting one verse a week through Scripture uh, to kind of see this truth, this unshakable joy. And so last week, uh, we began to look at, at verse 1 of O Holy Night. And I want to remind you of that verse. It's the backdrop to Christmas. It's why we are in need of a Savior. It's why we see everything through a broken lens. It's why we have a negative bias that sin has brought into our lives. And then we began to trace how the Messiah would come, which is important when we read Luke chapter 2 for us to understand. And why he had to come and why he came in the way that he came. So here's verse 1 of O Holy Night. It says, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. This is what we focused on, just this idea that we're chasing after joy and peace and, and hope and life and meaning and all of the places that, that we can't find it and all the things that God created to merely show us the, his glory and for us to steward for his glory. So we were, we were seeking life in error till he appeared, Jesus and it says the soul, the spirit felt its worth. We began to know why we're alive, where we belong, what our identity is, all in Christ. And because we were created for God, by God, for his glory, and to do all that we do and, and, and to live in all the ways that God has created us to live in him and for him. And a thrill of hope and that understanding began to, to hit our, our souls and the weary world, it says, rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Then this week we look at verse 2. It's not typically sung when we sing the hymn, O Holy Night, but it's a beautiful verse. It goes like this. Let, led by the light of faith serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. Over the world a star is sweetly gleaming. Now come the wise men from Orient land. And now in Luke chapter 2, uh, let me just pause and say this. In Luke chapter 2, we don't see the wise men. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about them when we're explaining Luke chapter 2 in just a moment. But we, we hear about the, the wise men in, in the book of Matthew. Uh, but Luke is telling us specifically about Jesus' birth. And, and just, you know, not to break any hearts, but the wise men were not at the manger. Um, they weren't. They came years later. They saw the star. They followed it. They're probably from Persia. Uh, they had about 800 miles to travel. They didn't get there in time. Um, and so if, if they're kind of in your manger scene at home, totally okay. It's fine. You don't have to move them. Just know they weren't there. All right. There's a lot of stuff in our manger that's, that's a little wacky um, that we're not really sure of. Uh, we'll, we'll see some of those things as we go through this story, uh, but come the wise men from Orient land, the king of kings lay thus lowly in a manger in all of our trials born to be our friends. He knows our need. It's why he came. Our weakness is no stranger. It's why he came the way that he came. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And so I want us to see that, that the birth of Christ is not just this fleeting moment. It's a, it's a moment that changes everything, that Jesus truly changes everything. And, and we don't want to miss that because that's where our joy is. And so look with me in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll read this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should, should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So you can start to see here why it's important that we see the, the prophecy of Jesus being foretold, that we walked through that last week, because many of the things that we talked about are being fulfilled in Jesus's birth. So we saw that Jesus would come out of the line of David. Here's Joseph. And though Jesus is not of the seed of Joseph, Joseph is in the line of David. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. They were to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, a time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. 
And an angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And the word there is actually mega joy. It's a joy that only comes when we know Christ. It's set apart. It's not like any kind of joy we can feel out of loving one another or experiencing something in the world. It's a joy that only comes in God. It's a set apart type of joy. I come to bring you mega joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, which, which should go without saying, right? This happens uh, you probably respond in this way. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen and had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Man, what a good story. What a story of joy, a Savior that is needed and a Savior that comes, a Savior that is faithful to fulfill his promises, a Savior that is foretold and shows up and does what only he can do for our salvation. I love this story. And one of the reasons that I love Luke's account and that we're looking at it this morning is that Luke really writes as a, a, an eyewitness account. He serves kind of like a reporter. And so throughout his gospel, he's, he's going around and he's really interviewing people that, that were with Jesus. He would have been able to interview people like Mary and, and hear the story from, from the mother of Jesus and what was it like and what took place and how did it feel. And, and so he's really bringing all of that into his writing. He would have been able to talk to the disciples. Maybe he would, even would have been able to talk to the, the, the that we know of, the four half-brothers and two half-sisters of Jesus. What was it like to grow up with Jesus? What does it take for someone that you're, you're a brother and sister of or a mother of, what does it take for you to be able to look at them and go, my brother or my son is God? Like what kind of life had to be lived? What kind of things had to be said? What kind of things had to be done? So, so Luke is able to have all of these discussions, and then he writes this eyewitness account like a reporter, giving us the story from the people who were within it. It's believed that he was funded the money to do so uh, and was asked to do so by a man named Theophilus that we read about in chapter 1, verse 3. And, and so he begins the story of Jesus' birth, and look back in verse 1, he says, in those days which was a very common way to kind of put a time and a, and a date and a place um, to something uh, of a story in this period of time and, and the writing style. Uh, I think a lot of us, when we read the story of Jesus or a lot of things in Scripture, we wonder to ourselves, like, why didn't Luke, if he's talking to Mary, like certainly Mary knew the exact date and time. She probably could have told us he was born at 7.05 a.m., right? And he weighed eight pounds and all of these different kinds of things. So why did Luke not tell us exactly. Why didn't he time, uh, like timestamp when Jesus was born? So we just all know. And, and the thing is, that wasn't the writing style of the day. Now for us, like in the, in the day of the diary and, and everything, we have our phones all the time. Like everything is automatically timestamped for us. And so that's the first thing we do is here's the day it happened. Here's the time. Here's the what, like all of those different kinds of things. But in this time, that wasn't the writing style. What they would do is that they would, they would give a timing to things based on the places and the people and the rulers. And they would kind of give uh, markers for what time frame that it happened in. But for Luke to just say, here's the time, here's the day, here's all the little details, it would have been out of the writing style of the day. And so it would give us reason for concern. 
Uh, but the fact that Luke doesn't do that, it fits right into the writing style of the day. And, and here's just the reality. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but, but I get asked the question a lot, was Jesus really born on December 25th? Uh, the answer to that, in short, is we don't know. We really don't know. Uh, there was, throughout church history, um, a description of Jesus being, they thought, conceived in March, uh, which might put us right around this time frame for Jesus' birth. Uh, there's a lot of different historical viewpoints on why we celebrate uh, Christmas, Jesus' birth on December 25th, and all of those different kinds of things. You can, you can look into all of that. Um, but we do know through what Luke says um, that, that these are real times, real people, real places written in the style it would have been written in in this time. Um, and Luke tells us everything we need to to know about Jesus, to be able to timestamp uh, time him, uh, and to know that these are real things during these actual times. Now, we don't know the exact date. All right, we do know that Jesus probably was born, uh, he was born in the time of Herod, which died in 4 BC. He died in 4 BC, so Jesus was probably, most theologians and historians believe, born between 6 and, and 4 BC. Um, we know that Jesus started his ministry, his, his uh, ministry with the disciples and his preaching ministry on his way to the cross. Um, when John baptized him, we know John started his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, uh, who, who reigned right around like 27 to 29 AD. So we know that's when Jesus' ministry started. He ministered for three and a half years thereabouts. And so that puts Jesus uh, around 30 years old when he begins his ministry. We see that in Luke and his story. And then around 33, uh, when he died around 33 AD. So we have all of the information. There's much more than that to know right around the times Jesus was, but we don't know if he was born on December 25th. Now, that doesn't mean we cannot, with, with a whole lot of celebration and joy, celebrate Jesus' birthday on the 25th, right? No matter how we kind of came about that, uh, we should participate in it. Advent is a blessing and a grace to us. It, it is, as I said, disrupts kind of the normal of our lives. And we need to have a time where we celebrate Jesus, and this is it. And so whether it came from pagan rituals and holidays uh, or not, we are redeeming it. We are celebrating Jesus in it. We're enjoying the church the lights, the presence, and all of it can point towards Jesus and help us to glorify him. Amen? Um, and, and so Luke says, before Jesus' birth, a decree went out in those days from Caesar Augustus. Now, historically, we know that Caesar Augustus, and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of, of history here. I won't, I won't try to get too into the weeds. You guys can study all these things, and I don't want to bore you, uh, but I really like the history of things, uh, and so I like to kind of infiltrate some history in uh, when I can, uh, and I think it helps us kind of understand that these are real people in real places in real times, uh, and that the Bible is the most truthful book. Caesar Augustus was actually born Gaius Octavius. Uh, we can see this throughout history. He was adopted by Julius Caesar and groomed to become Caesar, and he does. And so Caesar Augustus is, is the Caesar at this point. Uh, the governor of Syria, uh, Quirinius, is under him at Jesus' birth. And Quirinius is, is supposed to kind of oversee this census, this decree that goes out, that, that everybody needs to be uh, accounted for, right? This was something that Caesar Augustus wanted to do to, to A, know how many people he could tax. Uh, that's important when you're ruling a land. And then two, how big of an army can he have? Um, so he wants to kind of get the lay of the land and the people that are there. Uh, and so he, he sends out this decree. Quirinius is supposed to kind of oversee it. Um, but he is the governor of Syria. So again, real places, real times. You can read about these places on the news. You can study these people in history. And so to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth, where they were, to Bethlehem, where we know Jesus is going to be born. God uses a Caesar, a ruler, uh, who has a, a desire to get money and to have an army to bring Joseph and Mary to the place that they were foretold they would be in Micah, almost 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, where Jesus would be born. Now, moms... And those of you who have, have been pregnant, dads who have gone through a pregnancy with your spouse, how many of you want to have to travel almost 100 miles 
to get to another place because of a census while you're very, very pregnant and about to have a baby, right? That's what Mary had to experience. And typically we tell the story, and this is another thing that's probably in her manger, that she rode on a donkey, right? Now, maybe she did. Um, we know that's pretty common in those times for people to travel with donkeys or camels or, or something like that. But I do want us to know, because I think a lot of times we just hear the story and we assume that the Bible tells us so, right? And so we believe it because the Bible says it. Mary rode on a donkey, but the Bible doesn't say that. Um, and so we have no reason to believe that Mary did anything but walk. Now, she might have ridden on a donkey, but Scripture doesn't tell us that she rode on a donkey. But we do know that somehow they got to Bethlehem, which again, real place, right? You can go there today. And if you do go there today, you could actually visit the place that shortly after Jesus's birth, the locals said uh, that this is where Jesus was born. And people would go there to pray and to do different things all throughout the years, all the way up until um, the, the Roman Empire became mostly followers of Jesus and Constantine became ruler and made uh, Christianity kind of the, the, the uh, religion of the empire. Constantine's mom actually went to Bethlehem to the place that was foretold that Jesus was born and had a church built there. And you can go there today and the church is still there. It's still worshiped in. Uh, it's been worshiped in for over 1,800 years at this point, and you can see the place where Jesus was believed to be born. So I, I want to say all of this historically so that we know these are, these are not just once upon a time stories. These are stamped in time, and real things took place, and Jesus really came. All right, so Mary in verse 5 we see, it's kind of our first character that we're introduced to in the, the story of the manger and Jesus' birth. So look again at verse 5. It's where we see her. She's betrothed to Joseph, um, which is uh, kind of like a marriage. It's not like a, a betrothal in our day. Uh, in our day and time, uh, honestly, I mean, you just buy a ring. You ask somebody to marry you. They say yes, and like you're engaged. Uh, there's no but you can get unengaged without really any consequence, right? Without, I mean, other than hurt feelings. Um, but, but there's no real legal activity that has to take place. Uh, a betrothal in this time is, is legal. It's, it's almost like a marriage without consummation. And so there's this period of time that you would go through where you are uh, basically seen as married, but you're not officially married at that point. So betrothal means a lot more in this time than it does for us today. So she's betrothed to Joseph. She's probably a teenager at this time. She's very young. You could be married as early as 12 in this time. And so uh, her and Joseph, probably pretty young, and they, they're from a small town of Nazareth, probably 100 to 200 people. Archaeologists have found one well uh, was probably in Nazareth at this time. One well would give water to about 100 people. So 100 to 200 people. So think small town. Everybody, listen, knows everybody. Right? You're not getting away with anything in Nazareth, all right? Um, and Joseph and Mary are, are, if there's only 100, 200 people, there aren't a whole lot of kids growing up together at one time, so they all know everybody. Most people probably know who they're going to marry, right, very early on in life. And everybody knows everyone, and everybody knows everything that everyone is doing. So all the men have probably poured into Joseph. All the women have poured into Mary. They're all getting ready for this marriage, and Mary and Joseph have a lot of plans, right? Just like we would. And, and a lot of times when we read this story, and I don't want to read into scripture, but I do want to, to kind of give us a, a more full picture because a lot of times we just read it and we think Mary, Joseph, everything that's happening, like it's just almost this 30,000 foot level of a story and we don't really make them human. We don't really understand the things that they would be going through. Like Joseph and Mary had plans just like we would. They had life planned out just like we would. They believed they would have children and how they would raise them and where they would live and all of these different kinds of things. They had dreams. And suddenly an angel of the Lord shows up to Mary, appears to her, and all of her plans, all of her dreams, all of her ideas, everything that she's gone through in the past, suddenly she understands none of that's going to happen. So, so put yourself in her shoes just for a moment. 
Like God, an angel shows up and says, God is going to do something extremely special. You know that prophecy that's been foretold, the Messiah that's coming, that your people have looked for and towards and we've longed for and we're waiting on that Messiah. Hey, I know you have dreams and you have plans and you have ideas, but none of that's going to happen because that Messiah is coming through you. Now, you talk about your world being flipped absolutely upside down. You ever think of the story that way? That, that Mary, like everything she had dreamed as a follower of, of God and knowing the Messiah would come and wanting to worship him and wanting to build, uh, bring kids up under him to look for the Messiah, suddenly she understands that the Messiah is coming and that God's going to use her. So none of my plans, none of my dreams are going to happen. But the angel says, take heart. Kind of pats her on the back a little bit. And says, hey, essentially God's plan is better. Like I, I know it's not going to be easy. Like can you imagine her having to tell this story? Can you imagine her having to go to Joseph? Like listen, God, we don't have time to dig into this this morning, but but God's plan is not always our plan, but it's always better. And it might not be easy, but it's always better. And we need to be able to trust him. And I think one of the things that we see through Mary and Joseph, and I wish we could, I mean, we could spend a whole series just digging into what's happening here and the, the theological implications. But I think if we can just pull one thing out from Mary and Joseph, we need to just see their faithfulness to God, the honesty of Mary, the character of Joseph, Man, it's challenging, it's encouraging, but they, they hear from God and they just obey him. But, but none of it was what they expected. And I just want you to know, just in case God is doing some things and allowing some things in your life that feel really hard, that don't feel like if God was in it, this would be happening. Like, I just want you to understand that God brought about your salvation to, through a plan that wasn't what the people who were a part of the plan expected or wanted. And it changed everything about their life, but it was better. And you just need to know this morning that, that there might be some things you're going through that God is even allowing to happen in your life that, that are good for you and it's better than your plan. Be faithful, lean in, seek him. He's doing something in you. He is always working for your good. And, and so trust him in that. But that's Mary. Now, now quickly, let's look at Joseph because Joseph if we put ourselves in his shoes for just a moment, right? Mary is the one who he's about to intertwine his life with. He's about to marry Mary, if you will, all right? And an angel of the Lord does not show up to him and say, hey, I just showed up to Mary. I told Mary these things. Uh, and so you just need to know Mary's gonna come and tell you some stuff and you can believe her. That's not how it happens. Again, God has a plan that would not be Mary's plan. It wouldn't be Joseph's plan. They're going to go through a lot of pain just in talking about what God has revealed to Mary. They're going to have to work through a lot of things. Their character is going to be revealed. What they truly trust in is going to be revealed. And God allows them to go through some difficulty so that they can lean into God, so that they can grow in him, so that they can understand what he is doing and they can be dependent upon him and nothing else. God allows that in our lives constantly. So Mary has to come to Joseph and say, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. An angel just showed up to me. Don't worry, though. It's going to be a Holy Spirit baby, right? And, and Joseph's supposed to just, like, take her, her word for it. Like, how do you respond in that situation? Right? How do you respond? You are definitely thinking the worst, Right? There, there's no way around that. And in this day, certainly Joseph thinks the worst because we read that he's going to just quietly uh, divorce her in the Christmas story. We, so we know that. But this betrothal that they have, he decides because of his character, he doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to have her, her killed. And in certain scenarios, he could do that in this culture and this time. But he, he doesn't do either of those two things. He just wants to quietly 
divorce her. And so we get to see kind of the godly character of Mary, the honesty of Mary, that the Holy Spirit is, uh, the, the angel of the Lord has come to her and revealed something. And she goes to Joseph and just is honest and tells him. She trusts God that he's going to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And if my whole life is ruined and everybody deserts me and Joseph doesn't want me anymore, then, then so be it. Because an angel of the Lord showed up and God is moving and I know the, the history and I know the prophecy and I know the Messiah is coming and I know that I need a Savior. And I know that, that joy will not spring forth in the world and salvation will not come if the Savior doesn't come. So whatever might take place, I know that I have to do what God has told me to do. And so she goes to Joseph. Joseph and tells him, and she's just honest with him. And there's there's a hundred different ways that she could have gone about this to get around this, and we can think of a bunch of them. But she's honest, and she loves God, and she leans in. And Joseph is 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 a man of character, so he doesn't want to destroy her, but he wants to take care of her the best that he possibly can. And so he doesn't just react and explode. How many of us would do that? But he responds because, listen to me, he responds in grace because the way that we respond to things that happen will depend on who we are before they happen. Our character will be revealed. The love of Christ will be revealed. The grace we have experienced, the forgiveness that we have been given in Christ will be revealed when we go through difficult things. And can I just say by way of challenge for every single one of us, when we look at Mary and Joseph's life and their honesty and their commitment to God and the way that they lean in and trust him, just with with Joseph, take him for a second. We know very little about Joseph. You know what we know about him? He heard from God and he obeyed God. There is nothing better that could be said for any of us in all of our lives that we heard from God and we obeyed God. If that is said of us, then we have faithfully walked into what God has called us to. And so my my prayer for each of us, my desire for each of us is that we would be a people who hear from God and obey his word. So here's Mary and Joseph. The, the angel does end up coming to Joseph and saying, hey, uh, I really did show up to Mary. I really did say those things. You really do need to marry her. And, and so they, they go together to Bethlehem. We find them there. And, and when they get there, now here's one of the craziest things and parts of this whole story to me, is that they get to Bethlehem. Now all of, of Joseph's family is going to Bethlehem. It's where they're from. So it stands to reason to me that when Joseph and Mary get there, there would be a place for them to stay. Like even if they get there last, isn't someone in the family going to say, hey, you can stay with us. Now, either they got there super late in the middle of the night and just didn't wake anybody up and saw the manger and went because it was an emergency. Or because of their story and the fact that nobody believed that the angel of the Lord came to them, They were shunned by their family, and no one could believe that Joseph stayed with Mary. But however it took place, they're showing up to Bethlehem, doing what God has called them to do, and they've got to be thinking to themselves, God, where's the provision? Like, you called me to you, you've revealed yourself to me, I've given my life to you, and you're supposed to provide But what we actually find out is God provides everything that is needed for salvation and he shows up in the way to reveal the salvation we need and what he has actually come to save. So he shows up in the exact way he needs to show up to reveal who he is, but it's inconvenient for Joseph and Mary. They have to know the gospel story. They have to meditate on the gospel story or else the circumstances will steal the joy that Christ is actually coming to give. And so we see that they show up, there's a manger, they go to the manger, Jesus is born. Remember last week when we talked about Jesus being born into brokenness, being born into poverty, being born for the needy, being born into the destitute. Here he is, born in a manger, born right into the midst of what he came to save. 
This reveals something to us of the joy that we can have in him because every single one of us needs a savior. Every single one of us is broken in our sin. Every single one of us sees the world through a lens that is broken and negative and we all need a savior who comes into our brokenness and brings salvation reveals joy. See, this shows to us he's a different kind of king. He's got a different kind of salvation, a different kind of kingdom for a different kind of people. This is what we can't miss. This is what we've got to meditate on. This is what we need to, 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 to read and to study and to, to pray about and to, and to have deeply imprinted onto our hearts and our minds. In all our trials, he is born to be our friends. That is how he knows our need. Our weakness is no stranger. Remember the hymn? He is able to overcome our weakness. He was born into it perfectly, to live perfectly, to die for your sin, to raise so that you might have new life in him. And see, we see all of this in the shepherds and in the wise men. The wise men, as I said, aren't here. And let me kind of wrap up by just explaining this. The wise men come a little bit later, but they represent kind of the wealth of the world, the people who have everything but still need a savior, still realize that they need a savior. They're not Jewish. They're coming from 800 miles plus away. They don't believe in the prophecy of the Messiah, but they understand that he is the king that has come. They actually bring him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the the gift that you give to a king. Frankincense is the, is the incense of priests. And so there's this realization, there's this display of this gift as, as Jesus being the king and being the priest, the mediator between God and man and myrrh. Now that, that's a weird one because it's really an embalming ointment. It's, it's for those being put in the tomb. And so what we see out of these three gifts brought over from the wise men who represent having everything but still being in need of a savior is that Jesus came as our king, as our mediator, our priest, and also as our substitute, that he will take our sin. And all of that is seen in this passage and displayed the flip side through the shepherds. And that's kind of the last character we see in our story that we've read in Luke chapter 2. They're overseeing their flocks by night near or in Bethlehem. Uh, We read in the the Mishnah, the Jewish tradition and the law, that the shepherds were commanded to keep the sheep about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And Bethlehem was right about six miles outside of Jerusalem. So they've got the the sheep that would predominantly uh, sheep kept in Bethlehem would be used uh, in the temple in Jerusalem for the sacrificial lambs that would postpone the judgment of sin until the Messiah would come. And so here you have shepherds that are, that are quite possibly watching the exact sheep that would be used in Jerusalem in the temple as a sacrifice to postpone sins until the Messiah would come, while the Messiah, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, once and for all, who would die to take the sins of his people, the Savior of the world, is born just a few maybe yards from them. They're overseeing the, the sheep there, that might be used in the temple sacrifice. But what we need to know about the shepherds is that, that they're the, the low end of the totem pole in society. Just above those with diseases, nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. They were seen as unclean because they're watching the sheep. They're not able to even go into the temple. So they might be watching the sheep that will be sacrificed in the temple, but they are watching the sheep to be sacrificed for other people. They will not get to participate. They're seen as unclean. They're seen as dirty. Nobody wants anything to do with them. Nobody's bringing any good news to them. They are the last group of people on anyone's mind. They are the rejected. That's who the shepherds are. All they have are the sheep. So so nobody's looking to give them good news. But yet what we see is that when Jesus comes, the lamb that would be sacrificed once and for all, this good news that brings the thrill of hope comes to those most in need first. See, it's for all people, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, those who have and those who do not. But Jesus shows up to the ones who are the low end of the totem pole to say, there is hope, there is life, there is joy, there is salvation, and you are the first ones to hear the good news. 
as suddenly before the shepherds, an angel appears and it scares them, understandably so. They're just sitting there minding their own business and here comes an angel and says, fear not. And I love this. They're the first to hear. There is good news of mega joy. There is good news of joy that surpasses anything you don't have on earth, that surpasses anything that can be taken away from you, that surpasses anything that you can gain. And so, yeah, you don't have much and nobody's looking for you and nobody cares about you and you are the destitute and you're the lost and you're the ones that nobody cares about. But there is a joy that only comes in God and it is for you. It's for all people. A savior is born for who? Everyone. Everyone who places their faith in him. So if you're feeling lowly, you're feeling forsaken, you're feeling forgotten, you feel hopeless, you have a savior. You have everything, but it's not giving you everything you want. And, and you, you feel like you're chasing it after, after everything and you're getting everything, but it's not doing what you want it to do. You have a savior. Jesus has come. And I love the fact that it's such good news that one angel kind of gives it to the shepherds. But as soon as that good news hits the air and it is heard that the Savior has come, it's time. The Savior's come. Everything that was foretold, everything that's waited on, every, all the thrill of hope that we have, we have not had in our spirits, the weight that we have not felt, the lostness that has, has defined who we are, it's time for that to come to an end. The Savior has come. And as soon as one angel says it, all of the angels, a host of angels join in and have to proclaim the implications of that good news. And they say, as they herald it, which, by the way, is something that families would do for their firstborn sons, typically in this time, that, like we do on Facebook and social media. We herald the good news of the birth of our children. They would do this. They would hire people to go, kind of go through the town and to herald the good news. And, hey, here's our new baby boy. And he was 21 inches long and seven pounds, you know, and all of those things. That's how they would herald it. But Joseph and Mary don't herald because this is the Savior. The angels in heaven herald the good news of the Savior. And the host of angels gather together and say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who know him. Listen, you want peace in your life? You want joy in your life? You want meaning in your life? You want, you want the hope and the weight of life and value and worth to be known in everything that you do. You want that to be the thing that is imprinted on your mind, that it filters everything else that you do and everything else you are and everything else you see, that it is what colors your life, that the lens in which you see everything is the joy that you have in your salvation in Christ and your value, worth, meaning, place, being known in him, then you need to know that he is the one that your life is for. That he is the one that you are created to give glory to. That is what brings joy. And as we believe that, that he is the one that he says he is and glory goes up to him, then peace and joy and meaning and purpose and life come down to us. Don't miss that this Christmas. The shepherds get this good news and they immediately just go with haste to see the baby in the manger. They tell of everything that the angel had told to them. They worship the Savior and then they leave proclaiming the good news of everything that they have just experienced. They have something imprinted on their heart and mind that they will never get over. They are meditating on the truth of their Savior and they're proclaiming it now in everything that they do because Jesus changes everything. Listen, this Christmas, that is the reality. That is the hope that will make this time of year not just a time of fleeting joy, but a moment to celebrate the joy that is. Don't miss that. I'll close with this. I said at the beginning that scientists have told us a pathway to overcome the negative bias that's actually very biblical 
Paul understanding the truth of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the thing that we're to meditate on, the thing we need to imprint in our hearts and minds, the thing that brings joy as we focus on it, as we give glory to God, as we proclaim it in all that we are and all that we do. He tells us in Philippians 4, 4 through 8, how to live in the joy that we have in Christ. As he says, rejoice, again, I say rejoice. He gives us a command there, and you can, you can look this up. I won't read it just for the sake of time, but Philippians 4, 4 through 8, he says, rejoice. He commands that we rejoice in Christ. It's a moral obligation that we rejoice in the gospel truth when we have found our salvation in Christ. And he says, do it always, because there's always reason to rejoice. See, this is the salvation that, that brings us life outside of anything in creation, that can't be taken away, it can't be added to. So there's always, when we are in Christ, reason for rejoicing. There's always reason for joy. It cannot be taken away. And then he gives three things for us to practice, for us to rest in this rejoicing, this joy that we should do this Advent season. First, he says, give thanks in verse 6. See, the practice of gratitude is integral in our growth and joy in Christ. It needs to become a practice of our lives because we are no longer under the filter or under the umbrella of our brokenness and sin. We have been set free from being defined by the sinfulness of our own hearts and of the world and the enemy around us. We are made new in Christ. We are transformed in him. So therefore, we have a new lens in which we see everything. And we should be a people who do not practice negativity but practice gratitude for our salvation. We see the world through our salvation in Christ and his work by his grace. So we should practice thanksgiving in all that we do. Secondly, he says, don't be anxious, but in all things go to him. Take everything to him in prayer. See, joy is tied up in your proximity to God. He is joy himself. When we're separated from him and we walk away from him in sin, then we walk away from joy. Our worlds become littered with brokenness and sin. It becomes what we see everything else through. But when we are made new in him, we are brought back into community with the one who is joy. And so in all of your life, be thankful and give thanksgiving for he has saved you. But also in all of your life, lean into who he is. Grow in him. Grow closer to him. What are your practices? What are you close to? What are you rejoicing in? And finally, he says, train your mind and meditate on what is true. Fill your mind with what is good, with what is life-giving. Meditate on these things and print them upon your heart, mind, and soul. Become a person who sees everything in life through who you are in Christ. See, this Christmas, rejoice, seek to know, meditate on the coming of Jesus. He came, and he brings new life, and he's coming again, and he will restore and make all things new. And when we do that, our joy will grow. It will be imprinted on us. And when we think of Jesus, joy will be what comes forth. I love you. Merry Christmas. I want us to not miss it. Let's focus on Jesus and all that he is this year.